0: Well, good morning, beloved. Great to see everyone here today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. So we continue in our series, Christ Alone, a verse-by-verse study through this great little book. Now, um, our study this morning will be in verses 21 through 23, but... For our context today, I do want to begin reading back in verse 19. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Here are the words of the living and true God. The Apostle Paul, still speaking of Christ, writes, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Reconciled, or reconciliation, is one of the most descriptive words of our salvation in all of Scripture. And it goes alongside other terms that most of you are familiar with. Terms like justification and redemption and forgiveness and adoption. And these are terms used throughout Scripture to describe the work that Christ has accomplished through the cross on Calvary on our behalf. John MacArthur in his commentary of Colossians helps explain all of these great little terms. He writes, quote, In justification, the sinner stands before God as the accused, but is declared righteous. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave, but is granted his freedom as a ransom. In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor, But the debt which has been paid by Christ is forgotten. In adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger, but is made a son. And in reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but becomes his friend. And these are all just great pictures of these descriptive words that Scripture uses to describe our salvation, the work of Christ on our behalf. And so reconciliation is all about bringing us into right relationship with God through the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, before we jump into our verses in 21 through 23, I want us to look at some of the characteristics of reconciliation so we can rightly apply this word to our text. And I really want us to soak this word in this morning. This is such a rich word. And so let's just begin with the word itself. And we see it first in that verse we just read, verse 20. That word reconcile or reconciliation is the Greek word katalosso. And katalosso means to change from one state of feeling to another or that it describes an exchange. And so the idea then is to change from enemy, enemies into friends or to exchange hostility for understanding and acceptance. That's the idea behind reconciliation. It is a word that is used to restore relationships between two parties that were formerly at odds. It's moving from a place of alienation to a place of restoration. It's going from estrangement to endearment. And we see Paul use this word when he speaks of a change in a relationship. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 he uses it when he refers to a separated wife being reconciled to her husband. Or in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is. Jesus uses the word to speak of a brother being reconciled to another brother. He said, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and first go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. But here in Colossians 1, the word katalosso is referring to man being restored into right relationship, not with man, but with God. And because of this, Paul uses a slightly different word here. In verse 20, he uses the compound word, apo katalaso. It's katalaso with the the, uh, preposition apo, and it's added here in the Greek in order to intensify its meaning. And so the meaning of reconcile here means to change, Thoroughly, or to reconcile completely, and I think the reason that Paul uses a stronger term is because remember there's a group of false teachers in Colossae, these would-be Gnostics that didn't believe that faith alone in Christ alone was sufficient for salvation. They believed in order to be made right with God, you needed Christ plus works, and you needed Christ plus knowledge, and you needed Christ plus the dietary laws and on and on it goes to them jesus christ was merely just another emanation that had come from god a created being and if you wanted to be made right with god there was always something more for you to do or for you to learn and paul is saying here no christ by himself with no help from any other emanations thank you is perfectly powerful and capable To thoroughly reconcile humanity back to himself. And by the way, when it comes to being reconciled to God, it is always a one-sided process. Notice what it says in verse 20. Paul writes, and through him, that is through Jesus Christ, to reconcile to himself all things. When it comes to reconciliation, Christ is always, always, always the initiator. We love him because he first loved us. So God is always the initiator and we are always the responder. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So God always initiates the move. He is the one who restores us, fallen man, from the fall, and that is reconciliation. Now, you might be wondering, why is that? I mean, why can't I make the first move? Why is it always God? Well, that takes us to the second part of the meaning of this word reconciliation. In the Greek, that term kataloso was also used for um, financial transactions. And it meant a financial exchange. So for example, in exchange for money, goods or services were rendered of an equal value for the money which was paid for it. And when that transaction was completed, those two parties were said to be reconciled. So in order for us to be reconciled unto God, there must be a transaction that occurs. And so I just want you to hold on to that thought For a little bit here, and we're going to come back to that because it's very important. But just remember, for God to reconcile us, there must be a transaction that occurs. That's the main idea here. All right, so that's the meaning of reconciliation. Let's now look at the magnitude of it, the, the magnitude of reconciliation. And for that, I take you again to verse 20. Notice what it says here Paul writes, and through him, through Christ, So there are two categories of reconciliation. Number one, all things. And that speaks of the entire created universe. All of it. And then number two, people in particular. So first of all, let's look at all things. God's ultimate plan is to restore creation because a curse has been placed on it because of the fall. And this is how the book of Genesis begins, right? It starts very early on. We see... God looked at all that he made, and he looked at it, and he said what? It was very good, very good. But it didn't stay good for long, did it? And by the time we come to Genesis 3, a curse has fallen upon his creation because of Adam's sin. And the good creation was now marred by man's sin, thus the need to be reconciled back to God. Now, I want to show you this in Scripture. So put a marker there in Colossians 1. And turn to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Romans chapter 8 has some additional information which will help us to better understand this concept. Romans 8 verse 20 is where we're going to begin and I'll just read down to verse 22. Starting in verse 20. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, That's referring to the curse, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So here we see the vast magnitude of the consequences of sin, right? Creation itself is corrupted. It's described as being in bondage. And it groans to be delivered, to be set free like a mother who's in pain as she's about to give childbirth. So sin disrupted the harmony between creation and creator. And God's plan from the beginning was when the fullness of time has come, he will reconcile all things back to himself now when paul says all things back there in colossians 1 verse 20 he isn't talking about everyone and everything some have taken this verse to teach universalism that says all things here means that eventually every person will in fact be saved even satan and his demons will one day be reconciled but that's obviously not true (laughs) for as just one example of Revelation chapter 20 says, the devil and all of his minion and all the dead will be thrown into the lake of fire and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All things simply means that in the end, all things will come in subjection to Christ under his feet. We all know the words of Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given them the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, the dead, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In no way is Colossians 1 and for, or and or philippians 2 saying that everyone will be saved but what it is saying is that in the end everyone will declare that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father make no mistake about that in the end every knee will bow and every tongue will confess who jesus is not unto salvation it'll be too late at that point but make no mistake Everyone, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There'll be no wondering at the end of the age who Jesus Christ is. Everyone will know. And so it's clear when we use scripture to interpret scripture that Paul means all things for whom reconciliation is possible. But here in particular, he's speaking of creation. In fact, this is why we teach and believe in a literal millennial kingdom, a literal 1,000-year reign where Jesus Christ reigns upon this earth. Why? Because only during that time will the effects of the curse be visibly seen and fulfill all the promises that God has given in the Old Testament. Now, opponents of the 1,000-year reign will say it's only mentioned once in the Bible in Revelation 20, and we really can't use the most symbolic book to to extract from that a truth and take it literally but i would argue it's mentioned actually all throughout the bible as we get a glimpse into what a restored creation will be like not a new heaven and earth but before that there are a lot of texts that can give evidence to that but let me just give you one that talks about the dramatic changes that will happen just in the animal kingdom alone and so we know this isn't a new heaven and new earth. Listen to Isaiah 11:6 or9, and tell me if this is happening right now in your backyard. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fat and calf will be together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the viper's den. Go ahead, honey. Go have fun with the, with the cobras. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. The cursed creation will become uncursed. It will become restored and it will become here, as it's described, reconciled, reconciled. And guess what? Every year we sing it. Every year we sing at Christmas time, joy to the world, right? Now we think joy to the world is about celebrating the birth of Christ. But when Isaac Watts wrote those lyrics, he was not writing them about the first coming. He was writing them about the second coming, the reconciliation of all creation. Think about it. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Verse 3 goes, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. A reference to Genesis 3 and the curse. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's what's looking forward to the reconciliation of God's creation. And so that's just a quick overview of the meaning and the magnitude of reconciliation. So with the rest of the time that we have left this one, I just want to now turn your attention to verses 21 through 23, and you'll see on the back of the bulletin, there are four truths of the Colossians' reconciliation. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then these are true in your life as well. So let's begin with truth number one, you were alienated. You were alienated. That's our past. You and I were alienated from God and we see that in verse 21. Notice what it says. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Here in verse 21, the Apostle Paul reminds the Colossians of who they once were before they had been reconciled unto Jesus Christ. First he says they once were alienated from god and that is where every man woman and child begins fallen man begins alienated from a holy god first corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of god for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised no one has to help us to be hostile to god Hostility came to us naturally. Now, let's look at that threefold description of man's depravity given here. First is the word alienated. Alienated. And this word in the Greek means to be estranged from, it means to be separated from, it means to be completely cut off. Before their reconciliation, the Colossians were completely estranged to God. And that is true of everyone before we came to a saving faith of Jesus Christ. That is why everyone needs to be born again. Because at birth, we are all alienated from God. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Sounds pretty desperate. And this is the picture of Luke 15 when the prodigal son who went off to a far away country. This is who we once were a long way off from God. Even if you had Christian parents growing up, even if you were raised in a solid, strong christian church even if you were homeschooled all your life in our own hearts we were born alienated from god and it speaks to the fact that god is a holy god and we are sinful creation and there is an enormous gap that separates holy god from sinful man so first he describes our status before god once you were alienated And then next we see our attitude towards God. He says we were hostile in mind. Um, Please notice, uh, we are not um, neutral towards God. We weren't one foot in and one foot out. No, look at what it says. It says we were hostile towards him. One commentator wrote this, quote, alienation was not simply a passive distance from God, but in active hostility towards him, end quote. Have you ever tried to share the gospel recently with an unbeliever Christian? Yeah, not every engagement goes this way, but some of them do, where you try to share the gospel with someone, and what is the experience? Hostility, yes. Yeah. Just straight up, do not talk to me about that. Have you had that before? Get that out of here. And the reason for that is because we are hostile to the things of God. Jesus describes it this way in John 3, 19 through 20. He says, this is the judgment, that the light, that is Christ, has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And that's the natural state of every unbeliever. He hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's why when you share the gospel with someone, um, especially in our climate of today, uh, where everyone's right and your truth works for you and whatever you believe is fine as long as you're sincere about it, um, fallen man does not like to be told that you are sinful and that you're going to hell because you have sinned against a holy God. They'll say, I'm not a bad person. Are you kidding me? Look at him down there. He's worse. Well, that actually leads us to the final description in verse 21. As we were alienated from God, hostile in mind, and number three, doing evil deeds. We just read John 3, that fallen man loves the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. You see, the problem isn't an ignorance of God, but rather a willful love of man's sin. We love our sin. No one had to teach us how to be sinners. No one had to teach us how to engage in evil deeds. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath just as all the rest. We were birthed into this world with a radically corrupt sin nature that had a bent inclination towards doing evil deeds, and we did it to the max. That's what he's saying here, that our evil deeds flow out of our hostility in mind towards God. Well, that summarizes our past alienation. We were estranged from God through Adam's sin and fall in the garden, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. That's alienation. That's who we were. That's who we were. We were hostile to God and began in our mind and according to Paul here, it ended in our actions by doing evil deeds. That's who we were in our unbelief, alienated from God. But that leads us to our second truth this morning. And if you have been born again, you are now reconciled. Now reconciled. And this is your present condition if you were a believer in Jesus Christ. The only way out of our evil condition, not just the evil of the world, but the evil internal to us, is spelled out in the first half of verse 22. Notice. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. There it is. The only way to overcome the estrangement and separation between us as God is through one means and one means only and it is the death of Jesus Christ. Praise God. That is the only force powerful enough to overcome our body of sin that is in us sin in the new testament is never represented as this little bitty cluster of mistakes that we make sin in the new testament is represented as a power as a monster if you will it is a menacing force it is the reason you say hurtful things to those who you love it's the reason you're tempted to lie the reason you're tempted to covet the reason you're tempted to lust and on and on it goes It's not because there's this little bitty capacity in you to do occasionally a little bitty, tiny mistake. That's how us Americans like to think of our sin. No, it's that there is a monstrous power in us by nature that manifests evil in all sorts of ways. And the only way to overcome it has a name. And the name is Jesus. That's it. And specifically, the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus on the cross. Now don't get me wrong, the life of Jesus matters tremendously. He perfectly fulfilled the law that we were unable to keep. He was faithful when Israel and every other man before him was not. He showed us a way to always worship God comprehensively and purely and perfectly in spirit and in truth. And through his life he stored up righteousness that was credited to our accounts when we put our faith and trust in Him. And yet, if He did not die, all of that would have been for nothing. He would have just been a good example, of a great teacher, not a Savior. We need the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ to atone for our sins. That death, Jesus dying in our place, on the cross, taking the sentence that we deserved, that death that Paul teaches here is that beautiful word reconciles us reconciles us let that word just wash right over you because of his death you are now totally and completely reconciled to your God the reconciliation that Jesus has provided by his death is not just the first little taste of salvation that gets you started and then you having had the salvation begun for you now you need to continue to do the work to be a good Christian to complete the deal no we are not functioning Catholics salvation is by his grace in fact every minute you live you now have total and perfect peace with God you are no longer alienated from God you are no longer at war with your God You now have peace with God by his death. Question, how can a just God do that? Well, to answer that, I want you to go back to verse 20 for a moment. There it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Then we just see in verse 22 where Paul says, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. So verse 20, he made peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 22, his body of flesh by his death. In verses 20 and 22, we have these two separate clauses that are describing the exact same thing. By his death, Christ has now reconciled you, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's what those two verses together want to convey to us. And I told you earlier that for us to be reconciled to God, a transaction needed to happen. This is that transaction. Here's how it works. Our bank account was in the red. It was in the red. We were bankrupt before God. The wages of sin is what? Death. So separation. We were alienated from God. Our crimes demand a payment. He can't just wink and go, no big deal, you're forgiven, come on into heaven. That would not be just. So payment has to be made for God to justly forgive us. Okay? And so what happened is what I like to call the great exchange. The great exchange. And to see that, I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, as it beautifully explains what we're seeing here in Colossians 1. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 says that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleased through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God for he made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Now, there's a doctrine at work here, and it's called the doctrine of imputation. Imputation comes directly from the Latin, and it's an accounting term. That means to apply to one's account. To apply to one's account. And that's what we see, for example, back in Colossians verse. Or actually, in verse 21 here, as Jesus stood in for us, he, he took our place, he took the wrath, he, he took the punishment. You know what it says in Isaiah 53:5, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. That's the great exchange. And that's what we see in 2 Corinthians 5:19 not imputing their trespasses to them essentially what god is saying is god's not going to put that sin on your account and what it means is is god in his mercy decided to put your sin on jesus's account and he put jesus's righteousness into your account and that's what it says in verse 21 for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us now That does not mean that Jesus became a sinner for us. No, the Bible says he was without sin. But what it does mean is that Jesus literally bore the penalty of our sin on that cross. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. To put it another way, God the Father treated Jesus like you and I deserve to be treated. So that he could treat us like Jesus Christ deserves to be treated. How about that? That's what imputation means. From our account to his and from his account to ours. Isn't reconciliation glorious? And it is a glory that never ends for the believer. Your God has drawn near to you. Your heavenly father has not merely left the porch light on for you. Your Father, heavenly father has run to you through his son jesus christ and if you have faith in christ if you trust in the blood of christ if you believe jesus rose from the dead if you've repented from your sins and cry out to christ you will have this perfect peace with god second corinthians five seventeen says therefore if anyone's in christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come if you were a believer in christ then God is not estranged from you. You have been reconciled to God. You are a son or daughter of the King. You are a chosen trophy. You're an object of His eternal affection and love. There is no breach now between you and God the Father. The cross of Christ has brought perfect peace with us and now you are indwelt by His Holy Spirit and the Spirit is changing you from one degree of glory to another to look more and more like the image of God's son this is happening right now for every believer that is here this is the work of God in you and beloved he will accomplish what he has started God loves you he died for you he cares for you God is so gracious to you but the good news does not end there our third truth this morning is about our future you will be blameless. You will be blameless. God has every minute of your future covered and it's all wrapped up in his amazing grace. Notice what it says at the end of verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You know, that is the purpose of the cross of Christ. It's ultimately to present you before God the Father on the last day, holy and blameless and above reproach. Do you think there's power in the blood of Christ? (laughs) You need to understand that this is what you now are in the sight of God. This is not who you and I are in our experience, but this is how God sees you in His Son. And on that last day, this is who you and I actually will be. Now, let's look at these three descriptions for a moment and flush this out. First, he will present you holy before God. This is hagios in the Greek, and it means that we are separated from sin. And more than that, that we are set apart unto God. Are you set apart unto God? That is being holy. It has to do with the believer's relationship with God, that God is first in your life. And as a result of our union with Jesus Christ, God sees believers as holy. Now, get that. Now He sees us as His Son, God's Son, Jesus Christ, imputed into our account His own righteousness. Ephesians one verse four says, "Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him." That's Ephesians one four. And again, let me read 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Secondly, we see the word blameless. On that final day, God the Son will present you and I before God the Father, holy and blameless. Now this word for blameless means without blemish. actually used in the septuagint the, the greek translation of the old testament to speak of sacrificial animals in the new testament it refers to christ as the spotless lamb of god first peter 1 18 through 19 says knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. And then the final description we see is this term beyond reproach. And this word goes beyond blameless. This word means not only are we without blemish, but also that no one can bring a charge against us. You will be presented to God beyond reproach. Romans 8 verse 33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. When we are presented holy and blameless and above reproach before our God, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, as he's described in Revelation 12, will be unable to make a charge stick against those whom Christ has reconciled that cross on Calvary Christ reconciled you totally and completely in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father but God sees us now as we will be in heaven when we are glorified he sees us through the sacrificial death the the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ upon your life when he looks at you, he sees you clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. The process of our spiritual growth involves becoming in practice what we are in reality before God. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 says we have put on the new self and that new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him and so we looked at number one our past alienation number two our present reconciliation number three our future glorification and that leads us to our final point this morning in our personal assurance personal assurance, for all of this to be true in your life and in mine, we must continue in the faith. We must continue in the faith. We all need to know that this is real in our lives, do we not? We can't just have our toes come up to the very tippy toes of the narrow gate, but never go through it. We can't just see others say, but not myself, know that I have been Saved by Christ. I can't be deluded about this. I can't be self-deceived about this. I need to know that this is real in my life, don't you? And so verse 23 speaks of our personal assurance in the faith. This answers the question, how can I know if this reconciliation with God has taken place in my life? How can I know that my faith is is a real saving faith? in Christ. Well Paul tells us in verse 23 notice how he begins the verse he starts with the word if if now that word if should capture our attention you have been reconciled if you are no longer alienated from your God if your faith in Jesus Christ is genuine if Indeed, you continue in the faith. Now, the faith here refers not to our faith. It refers to the faith, the Christian faith. It returns to the teachings of Christ. It refers to the truth of the gospel. It refers to the person and work of our Lord. It is objective faith, not subjective faith. And to continue in the faith speaks of perseverance and endurance In the objective Christian faith, meaning if you are lured away from the truth or deceived about the person and work of Jesus Christ and you become deceived by, say, this Gnostic teaching about the Lord, it is clear evidence that you were never saved to begin with. In other words, the saving faith you thought you had never came down from above. It was never seared into your heart through the Holy Spirit because if you had true saving faith, you would continue in the faith. In spite of all the falsehoods and teachers around you, you will not be dismayed. You will not be led astray you know the voice of the teacher. 1 John 2:19 explains this for us in incredible detail and answers the question for us. 1 um, John here the apostle is explaining to the church why all these people have gone and left they were they, they we baptized them they were singing the songs with us they came every week to church but now they they've left us and they went following after those teachers of antichrist and so he says yes they went out from us but they were not of us they were never of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us there's an old saying that goes the faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the start. It's kind of like a faith that goes up like a rocket and comes down like a rock. It's not real. It was never real faith. It's not how you start the race. It's how you finish the race before us. So he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, perseverance becomes the bottom line. It becomes the ultimate validation of your faith. Again, John MacArthur writes, truth and time go hand in hand over the long haul, continuing in Christian truth and pursuing that in personal holiness. And then Paul adds stable and steadfast. Now that word stable means to be grounded like a a solid um, building on a firm foundation. Here's the picture of a stable believer and, and, and he's grounded in biblical truth. He, he's grounded in abiding in Christ and he will not move. And that's why it's necessary for us to preach the full counsel of God, the full word of truth, so that those who truly know the Lord have a firm foundation for their faith. That's why we're not preaching 10 steps on how to have your best life now that's not the faith and then Paul adds and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel meaning not lured away to other strange teachings about Jesus Christ not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I Paul became a minister the gospel is for pre- preaching the gospel is for proclamation for all of creation every tribe nation and tongue romans 10:17 says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the words of christ so paul is saying to the church in colossae continue in the faith and doing what you did at first stay stable and steadfast not shifting From the hope of the gospel that you heard. Keep that anchor securely in Christ. Hebrews 6.19 says this hope we have as an anchor above the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast. And one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. And then Paul ends this glorious little section saying... And of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul was a minister of reconciliation. Corinthians, Romans, Colossians. He couldn't stop shouting about reconciliation. It was all the work of the Savior. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. It is for Him and by Him and through Him all things were created. And He has made us for Himself. And He alone can make us a new creation. He is Lord. He alone reconciles us to the Father and presents us as holy and and above reproach before Him. We were running in the opposite direction of God, were we not? We were at enmity with God. We were engaged in evil deeds. We hated the light. And yet God from heaven did all of the work through His Son, Jesus Christ, at the cross at Calvary. He has now reconciled us to the Father. And so, yeah, it's no question by what He meant when He said, it is finished. There is no other way for fallen man and holy God to become one except through His death in His fleshly body. What a great Savior. What a glorious Savior, we have. He has undertaken the cause all by Himself. And through the shedding of His blood, as those spikes and nails were driven into His hands and that spear thrusted into His side. It was through that death. That death. In His fleshly body, that He took holy God and, and sinful men and reconciled us together by faith in Christ. We who were once enemies are now sons and daughters and friends of God through Christ. I pray that you truly believe upon this Christ and call upon Him because if you don't, all other ground is sinking sand. If you need prayers this morning, I want to invite you to come forward. Thank you for hanging in with me. And at this time, I want to invite you to please stand as we sing the song of invitation, Hymn of Heaven. Thank you.